You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. Large crowds followed Him, and He healed them all. He warned them not to make Him known, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for being a faithful, present, caring, attentive Father who invites us uh, to dance with you, to know you through your precious Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would rest upon us this morning, that as he indwells his church, that his church would be edified for your namesake and glory. I thank you for the opportunity Uh, to share your word with your people for your glory. And I ask you to bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we want to tag our pericope, hope for the bruised and the battered. Hope for the bruised and the battered. Charles Spurgeon, one of the world's most four known preachers and first megachurch pastors served as the pastor of Victorian London's largest congregation, New Park Street Baptist Church. Spurgeon has often been called the Prince of Preacher, and he was a prolific writer, preacher, abolitionist, and man. Yet Spurgeon's life was marked with deep sorrows and great disappointment as he regularly battled accusations from false brothers, gout, and depression. Spurgeon used the term fainting fits to describe his experiences with sorrows. These spiritual sorrows, Spurgeon says, are the worst of mental miseries. Spurgeon once wrote that these miseries lead us to either believe God has deserted us and left us barren in his absence, or we think God is gleefully present, happily smiting us with actual guilt and delighting as we squirm in agony with no mercy and no way out. The sorrow Spurgeon experienced were not only spiritual, but he also experienced it through terrible circumstances. One wounding incident scarred Spurgeon all of his life. On October 19, 1856, he stood in a pulpit preaching to thousands when a prankster yelled, fire, fire, fire. The resulting panic left seven dead and 28 seriously injured. With so many people dead, London newspapers cruelly and mercilessly blamed him. No one knew if he would preach again. 
He even considered quitting. Susanna, Spurgeon's wife, says that her husband tottered on the verge of insanity after this event. According to biographer Zach Eswine, those close to him would prepare for what we now call suicidal watch or provide for him what we now call suicidal watch to make sure he didn't harm himself in despair. 25 years later, Spurgeon was about to address a large audience during a session at the Baptist Union. He was older now, middle-aged, a seasoned pastor, and widely known. In a standing room only event, he experienced a flashback of the post-trauma, and he responded with anxiety. The present moment triggered a haunting memory, and Spurgeon's body responded as if he was threatened by danger, and the story is told that he barely preached that evening. As one biographer said, frowning providences sometimes don't take the hint and move on. They lure and lauder around our memory for years. And every time I read biographical accounts of Charles Spurgeon, I can't help but be encouraged as I see a man who was significantly used by God, but who was incredibly human. He was bruised and battered, but armed with both grace and grit, and he persevered through ministry obstacles. And all of us, no matter how young or old in the faith, has been beat up for the glory of God. All of us have experienced broken hearts. In one of Charles Spurgeon's sermons, he talked about how every Christian will experience broken hearts. And he gave some really helpful categories to put them in. First category he gave was the category of desertion. He says that every Christian will feel neglect or betrayal by a spouse, by a family member, or by a friend. Second, he said bereavement, ailment, or death of a loved one. Or penury, job loss, financial strain, poverty of basic needs, or disappointment and defeat, dreams unreached, goals blocked, attempts that fail, and foes that won. And his last category of those who are broken and battered is guilt. He says every human being will experience regrets, pains we've caused others, and sins against God. Because we live in a world marked by the fall, we all find ourselves beat up sometimes. And if we haven't been beat up, then we either lack self-awareness or we are avoiding living a life on mission for God. But the question that I pose this morning is, is what do we do when we find ourselves bruised and beat up? What do we do when we find ourselves hurting? Where do we go when we sense that we need healing? How do we find help? And here's the reality. If we don't find healing for our wounds, we will end up bleeding on people who didn't cut us. 
I declare if we don't find healing for our wounds, we may end up like the Pharisees who were always mad at something and someone, always disgruntled. So where do we find hope when we're beat up? Well, you probably guessed it, that our hope is found in Jesus. Jesus is hope for the weary and heavy laden. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is our holiday. Jesus is our retreat. Jesus is our bridge over troubled water, our refuge, our shield, our mind regulator. Jesus is our prince of peace. He is our hallelujah. He is our bread in times of hunger and water in times of thirst. And I want you to remember today as we look at this text that there, as Richard Sibbs uh, Baxter said, there is, is more mercy in Christ than sin and brokenness in us. We see this in today's text. Matthew continues with the theme of rest by showing us that Jesus is hope for the bruised and the battered by quoting Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 through 4 verbatim. He quotes Isaiah here in order to show his readers that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's helping them to interpret what Jesus has already done, what we've been looking at already in this text. And he is foreshadowing what he is going to do. Jesus is God's suffering servant who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Who, unlike the Pharisees, can sympathize with people's weakness and deal gently with them. Jesus is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let's look at Jesus in this text. Verse 14, it tells us that the Pharisees went out and they plotted against him on how they might kill him. In verse 15, it shows us that Jesus was aware of this plot and so he withdrew and large crowds followed him and he healed them all. What a beautiful scene. But I want you to notice that Jesus... What Jesus does after he heals them, the text says that he warned them not to make him known. This is what some theologians call the messianic secret. Jesus wants to keep his identity inconspicuous. And the question is why? Well, the first reason is not going to be found directly in this text, but I think can be found in other synoptic gospels and, and other places is simply that Jesus was on a divine timeline. Jesus knows that he was born for the purpose of dying. And he is on a specific timeline that the Father has given him. So Jesus withdrew from the Pharisees, not out of, of fear. No, Jesus would face his death bravely, with bravery. Well, Jesus withdrew because his time had not yet come to die. But second, the text tells us explicitly that Jesus want people to keep his miracles on the low as a fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah's words. The text says, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Jesus withdrew and he told people not to uh, let him be made known so that what was spoken Isaiah might be fulfilled. Jesus is unlike any revolutionary leader that we have ever seen. He's not desiring and seeking to be famous for sinful and selfish reasons. No, Jesus 
as the prophet Isaiah would write, came quietly, rarely shouting and arguing. Now, sometimes we see that Jesus is more caffeinated than others. We see Jesus flipping over tables. We see Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 scolding the Pharisees. But the majority of his ministry was quiet and unassuming. Jesus in in Galilee was was often turning away crowds, hiding and, and, and asking people to be silent. But as he goes nearer to his death in Jerusalem, we see him being more open and more passionate, knowing that his time had come. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the paradoxical Savior. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is all-powerful in word and deed, yet he is humble and unassuming. Matthew is helping his readers make sense of the, the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. How do we make sense of the fact that this Messiah was to be a revolutionary leader, and yet he was also the suffering servant, as we read in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53? Isaiah's prophecy reveals that of all the many things that can be said about the Messiah, somehow it is often going to be said that he was a servant to all. Jesus himself declared that he did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus declared that the greatest in the kingdom of God is the servant. Jesus is God's servant. And being God's servant, he is the chosen Messiah. Now, when we hear that Jesus is chosen, we want to be careful to understand that this isn't uh, God picking Jesus after Jesus was living his life as a great human being. And at some point in, in, in time and space, God said, you know what? You're doing an excellent job as a human being. You're now my son. No, 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 no. Well, when the text talks about Jesus being chosen, this is a, a, a chosen that happened before the, the foundation of the world. This is a Jesus who is eternity, eternally God. This is a Jesus who is equal with God and glory for, for eternity's past being selected to come into this world, to enter into time and space as God's choice servant of our redemption. Second, Jesus in his text is shown as the Messiah, as the one with whom God delights. We see this delight in Matthew chapter 4. And during Jesus' transfiguration, as God spoke from heaven twice in Jesus' ministry, And said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And just as a quick side note, may we remember that the good news of Jesus Christ is this message to you and me today. That those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus, that those who have placed their faith and trust in this this triune God now receives this affirmation of delight, now receives this affirmation that says we are God's children with whom he is well pleased. 
Our acceptance with God is based on the fact that he is pleased with his son. And because we have believed on his son and because we have accepted his son, the savior of sinners, he accepts us and the father accepts us and becomes well pleased with us. Third, we see that Jesus, the Messiah, had the Holy Spirit upon him. The text tells us that not only is Jesus the one with whom God the Father will say is his beloved in whom he delights. But the text tells us that he says, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout and no one will hear his voice in the streets. This is eerily familiar to what Jesus would preach in the temple and and because he would preach this in the temple in Luke chapter 4, we see that they, the people would seek to stone and to kill him. Jesus one day quoted Isaiah 61, and Isaiah 61 says this about the, the coming Messiah, that the Spirit of the Lord God is on me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to, to give them a, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, splendid clothes instead of despair. And one day Jesus would stand in the temple and say, behold, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. In Matthew chapter 4, we see that at Jesus' baptism, as he shows his humility and wades in the water of baptism, just like he would call us to, though he is without sin, we know that the Spirit descends upon him as a dove. Spirit of God rested on Jesus, anointed him to do what he came to do. And verse 18 tells us the ministry of the Messiah. He will preach. He will proclaim justice to the nations. Later on in verse 21, Isaiah prophecy says that the, the nations will put their hope in his name. Jesus is not only hope for the Jewish people. Matthew is, is reminding his leaders and, and his readers. Jesus is, is hope for the nations. He is hope for the coastlands. He is hope for the most destitute places of the world. He is hope for Venezuela. He is hope for Syria. He is hope for Puerto Rico. He is hope for Pakistan. He is hope for Arabia. He is hope for Africa. He is hope for China. He is hope for America. Jesus is hope. We're going to read later in Matthew that after he is raised from the dead, he's going to call his disciples to take the gospel to, to all nations. Matthew tells us that we can bet our bottom dollar on him fulfilling his promises. I love this little phrase. It says that the Messiah will lead justice to victory. He will complete what he came to complete. Jesus always checks off every item on his task list. Jesus is batting. 1,000%. He is batting perfection. And even as good as that seems, that's not even the most encouraging part of this text. Look at your Bibles. It says, Isaiah said, he will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will not 
break a bruised reed. And he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will not break a, a bruised reed. And he won't put out a smoldering wick. And some of us, we need to hear that this morning as we feel bruised and battered and beat up. We feel rather hopeless and, and overwhelmed, underwhelmed with God and overwhelmed with our problems. We, we feel guilty and fear-ridden and shame-filled. God wants me to remind you today that the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the Messiah, if we, if we had to sum it up, would be he won't bruise those who are bruised and he won't put out a fire for those who are barely holding on. Frederick Bruner poetically and powerfully wrote, a reed was used for measuring and for support. So that once its straightness was lost by bending or cracking, it was of no further use. A strip of linen cloth used as a lamp wick, if it smokes, is of no use for giving light and is simply a source of pollution. It is in danger of going out altogether. Common sense would demand that both be replaced, the reed being snapped and discarded or burned and the wick being extinguished. The imagery thus describes an extraordinary willingness to encourage damage or vulnerable people giving them a further opportunity to succeed, which a results-oriented society would deny them. Jesus, was hope for the outcast. Jesus was hope for women. Jesus were hope, was hope for the Gentiles and lepers and Deaf and blind, Jesus came for those who are poor in spirit and those who, who are mourners. He said, happy are the unhappy in him. Where are the bruised reeds in here today? Where are those who feel battered? Where are those who feel like they are black sheep, misunderstood? Where are those today who who barely made it into the sanctuary, Jesus wants you to know that he is attentive and that he cares about you, that he is, is not like the Pharisees. He is not like Caesar. He is, is for those who are hurting. He is for those who feel damaged. He is for those who, who feels like no one else cares for them. He comes in, in tenderness and gentleness. He comes to handle you with care. Jesus can handle your stress. Jesus can handle your insecurities. Jesus can handle you as you are bruised. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of rest. He says, you don't have to go to, to weed for rest. You don't have to go for, 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 for sexual comfort for rest. You don't, you don't have to go on a, a spending spree for rest. He says, come to me, uh, unfold yourself in me, lose yourself in me, and I will give you rest. And you're in the right place today. 
If you say, I feel like I I need to be in a hospital, you're in the right place today. This is not a gathering of perfect people, but punctured and wounded people. This is a hospital for us together to look to Jesus and to become made whole. I'm a living witness that Jesus is for the bruised and the battered. As I consider my life as a disciple, as I consider my life as a a child of God, as I consider my life as a pastor. The summer was one of the most restful summers that I ever, that I've had in a long time. And it was just a, a great summer, a beautiful summer. But anytime you come through a long season of, of persevering and, and challenges, and anytime you declare that you're going to get rest, uh, stuff comes up. You guys know I've been open about my own journey as a pastor, as a child of God, and how sometimes stuff comes up and we, we feel overwhelmed. I remember it was towards the end of the summer and some stuff came up as I created space in my soul for the Lord or for family. And by the end of the summer, I, I remember feeling overwhelmed and I, I had breakfast with one of our uh, pastors here, Pastor Brandon. And he could just sense that I was struggling in my heart. And he just listened and and drew out my heart and just cared for me in community. As I told him, like, Pastor Brandon, I I love what I I do. I'm so thankful for my life. But as I got space this summer, some some things came up and I'm dealing with some anxiety. And he says, well, Jamal, how, how do you feel? I said, well, if I'm honest right now, I feel like I'm damaged. I feel like I'm damaged goods and I don't know how, what to do. And he didn't try to fix me. He didn't condemn me. He sat with me. He was, he was Jesus' hands and feet for the moment. He was Jesus' heart for the moment. I remember, remember walking out of that restaurant, Grill House restaurant, one of my favorites here in Louisville. They're not paying me to say that. I might tell them to next time. <laughs> And I just felt the calming presence. And I remember going to the Psalms that next week and reading them just vervaciously. And I came upon Psalm 19, and it talks about how the Word of God revives and renews the soul. And I can't, I can't explain to you what happened. I, I can't explain to you what God did in my soul. But at that moment, that, that phrase just stuck out to me, and I just pleaded with the Lord to revive me, and and revival began to to happen in my heart. And I can honestly say, though I'm still imperfect and still struggle and still I'm unpacking some stuff, that I've had the best few months of my life, and I'm happier than I can remember in a long time. As Jesus proved to be true, the word says, the Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores He restores my soul. Jesus is who we run to. Jesus is who restores us. Jesus is who renews us. Jesus is who remakes us. Jesus, Jesus is the potter. We are the clay. But I want to encourage you by looking at this text and by looking at what Jesus did when he felt When he felt pressure from the Pharisees, as the Pharisees had made up in their mind, they began to plot to kill him. Notice what your Savior does. Notice what your Jesus does. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't call them out. He doesn't pursue them in anger. But he does what he wants his gritty disciple makers to do. 
he withdraws. Huh. He, he withdraws. Jesus withdraws. He, he doesn't press in. He, he doesn't rebuke them in the moment. He withdraws. They're trying to kill him. He withdraws. Perhaps God's invitation to you and to me today, if we are feeling overwhelmed and battered and bruised, is to withdraw. There's a lot to be nuanced here, so hear me and hear the scripture as a whole, but sometimes it is necessary. Sometimes it is holy to withdraw. Sometimes it is the best thing you can do if you find yourself in a definitely in a physically abusive or emotionally abusive relationship, withdraw. If you find yourself enmeshed in, in family dynamics that, that, that is choking you and, and all of your responses is, is unhealthy, withdraw. If you find yourself in a season where you just need to process and, and you need to, to stop serving for a while and, and sit at Jesus' feet like, like Martha, for, for goodness sake, withdraw. Sometimes the best thing we can do is to say, I just need to step out for a minute, catch my breath and withdraw. Now, here's what's amazing about what Jesus and how he withdrew. He did not withdraw from everybody. He withdrew from toxic people in a toxic situation. He withdrew and he was still in community. He was still seeking the Lord's will and he would re-engage. How is God inviting you to withdraw? For some of us, it's just simply doing what Jesus did often. That's waking up early in the morning and going to pray before your day begins. For others of you, maybe that's you uh, taking Sabbath rest, pausing once a week and just resting and leaving the things that's in your inbox and the emails that there are unread, unread for a season and, and your inbox full in order for you to heal. Third, remember that Jesus calls us as his church to be, in the words of Henry Nouwen, wounded healers. Just as Jesus was equipped with the Holy Spirit for ministry, so have we been. God never calls us to do something that he does not equip us for. And even though we are broken, even though we are battered, we are always useful in God's kingdom. In fact, God often uses us when we feel most broken and most battered. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies those whom he has called. We, the church, are called. And as we consider healthy rhythms of life and, and even in our brokenness, may we, the church, stand up and always be the church. May we, the church, remember that he has set us aside and he has put his light on the inside of us so that we can be a light for the nations. May, may we remember that he has not called us 
to be hostile and toxic like the Pharisees, but he has invited us to be those in society who are healers, those in society who are vulnerable and, and gentle and compassionate. May we together stand up. I'm so grateful for our, our ministry of foster care and adoption. I've been humbled by the leadership of our pastors, Pastor Nathan and his team, and, and, and how they are, are encouraging people to stand up for vulnerable children by providing a safe home for them, by supporting parents who adopt and who are in foster care. Just from last year, as we have ramped up this ministry, we've seen our, our, our church go from 12 to 25 families who are actively engaged in this way. We've seen children who did not have a home receive a home. We've seen members who aren't called to foster or adopt themselves uh, sacrificially give so that, that children in the state will have an opportunity to, to be a part of a loving family, an opportunity to hear the gospel and to see the gospel lived out. May we be a church that continues to stand, as James says, for true religion is to look out for widows and orphans. Oh, but may it not stop there. May we be a church who, who stands up for, for children who are in their mother's womb, the most vulnerable. May we be a church who, who stands up for those who are, are falsely and, and harshly in prison. May we be a church that is a, a place for the refugee, a, a place for the immigrant, a, a place for the least of these. May we be the hands and feet of Jesus. May people look at Sojourn and say, these are a gritty people. These are a disciple-making people. These are a compassionate people who don't break bruised reeds or put off smoldering wicks. And may we know that we can't do this in our own strength and own power, but that this will only be done by the grace of God and in humility and through the power of the Holy Spirit. God uses bruised reeds, as it has been said, rather than polished reads, flickering rather than glowing flames. We've already seen in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is in the business of calling tax collectors to be disciples, rough fishermen to be those who gently handle people. God used John the Baptist who doubted, Charles Spurgeon who was depressed, Rosa Parks, who was tired of being tired. God uses us despite our brokenness. In our weakness, Paul says, his strength is perfected. Words of Richard Sibbs, are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you to not conceal your wound, but to open it all before him. He calls you to go to Christ remembering that there is more mercy in him than sin and brokenness in us. So draw to a close. Charles Spurgeon was bruised and battered throughout his ministry. He rarely, rarely lived a week without anxiety and guilt because of that day when a prankster yelled out, fire, fire. But in one 
powerful sermon that he wrote called Fear Not. He led his congregation into his, his wounds and he told them how he had learned to live with a but Jesus in his spirit. He wrote, if our greatest hope isn't our present healing, but his everlasting love, what do we do? We look at our accuser and we whisper if we can't shout, you might be right, accuser, but Jesus. You might be right that things are worse than I thought, but Jesus. You might be right that I'm abandoned, but Jesus. You might be right that I should stay down, but Jesus. You might be right that it would be too late for me, but Jesus, you might be right. I am out of reach, but Jesus, you might be right. I am a sinner, but Jesus, you might be right. They might be better off without me, but Jesus, you might be right. I deserve to die, but Jesus, but Jesus went to Calvary to save a wretch like me. My hope is found in nothing less but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but, but wholly lean on, on Jesus' name, on, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Are you bruised? Are you battered? Run to Jesus. Are you weak and are you weary? Run to Jesus. Are you hopeless? Are you tired? Run to Jesus. Are you confused and broken? Run to Jesus. Do you feel like damaged goods, like a, a, a walking contradiction? Run to Jesus. Run to he who, who lived for you, who died for you, who rose for you, and who's coming back again. Who will dry up every tear and who keeps your tears in a bottle? Run to Jesus. And if we run to Jesus, we may be able one day to respond like that old Negro spiritual, I've had some good days and I've had some, some hills to climb. I've had some weary days and I've had some sleepless nights. But when I think things over and look around, all of my good days outweigh my bad days. And in Christ's love, I won't complain. And every Sunday we gather together as the people of God. We take a meal called communion which reminds us that Jesus was bruised and battered. The night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We take a piece of bread, we dip it in juice or wine. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, man, I just want to invite you. I want to invite you to continue to come. I want to invite you to, as we're taking communion, to just rest and to sit and to receive and to think about the words you've heard. I want to invite you to ask God, God, if you are real, if Jesus truly is the Son of God, if he truly is the Messiah and hope for the nations, would you show his face to me? Would you have mercy upon me? Would you handle me with care? Would you open my heart? Jesus is good news for the weary, and he offers rest to you today.
Those in the front, you can come to the front. Those in the back, you can go to the back. Gluten-free and alcohol-free. Communion is over to my left. Let's eat. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.